Kids, the fruit of the Spirit is not a turbo banana. Kids, they, they know this. It's a kids' camp thing. You guys wouldn't understand. Sorry. Um, we've been looking in Galatians at Paul's words to a church who they did not have Jewish customs. They did not have the law. They did not know much. They worshipped idols. And Paul introduced them to this creator God who rescues sinful people through salvation Faith being, uh, salvation being available by grace through faith to them, that, that, that no amount of works can please God, no bad deeds can keep you from God, except that you have faith in Christ, there is no salvation, there is nothing, it is not possible to save yourself except through faith in Jesus' finished work. So this is what we're seeing, this is what Paul's reminding the church of, and uh, we, we recognize that Paul's a little upset with some of these false teachers coming into the church and trying to teach them false things. He gets mad at them in chapter 1. He's mad again in, in chapter 4. And chapter 5 is my favorite point of anger for Paul because it's very graphic and you can read it. Chapter 5, verse 12 says, I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. That means exactly what you think it means. You know, why stop at the tip? Just cut everything else off. There you go. I wish you guys would just do that to yourselves. Some of you are like, oh, we shouldn't be laughing about this. No, it's funny. (laughs) He's mad. (laughs) But Paul is also shocked. He's shocked at the church's ability to quickly forget what they've seen in Christ. Paul actually says that they were presented with Jesus in such a way that it was so clear that his life, death, and resurrection paid the price for them that it was actually like they were holding a Polaroid in their hands of the actual event. So he's saying, you're forgetting everything that's happened. You're forgetting that you have been set free from the law, meaning you have been set free from this work, salvation, out mentality of I can do enough to be saved also, you know what that buys for us? That buys for us freedom from, from hell and death and the, re- the wrath of God and sin and freedom from the enemy and all of the things that come with being a slave to the law. You have been set free. Not only have you been set free, but your identity has changed. You are no longer an enemy of God doing your own thing, refusing him. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are an heir of all that the Father has And now Paul is going to kind of direct us at what this freedom actually looks like. Freedom displayed on the outside, because as Miss Sue said, this freedom on the inside, it's too big to stay bottled up in here. But it shows up in very real ways. Now, ultimately, we have to address our culture's view of what freedom looks like. We live in a society that is different than most of the world. Most of the world, there are a lot of people in the world who do not have the basic freedom to make a decision. I don't know if we've thought about that, but most of the world, there are people who live and they are not able to decide a thing for themselves. So there is a very real thing that the gospel addresses to those cultures in bringing physical freedom to people who do not have any. But we live in a culture where things are getting out of control on what we define as freedom. There's a scene from a movie, a very trippy movie at that. If you watch it, um, it's completely... I don't know what they were thinking when they made, but anyways, so you, you can watch the clip.
I don't even know what that sound was. Did you hear the lyrics? I will read them for you again if you missed it. I've got no strings to hold me down, to make me fret, or to make me frown. I had strings, but now I'm free. There are no strings on me. Hi-ho, the Mario. That's the only way to go. I want the world to know, hey, nothing ever worries me. See, we live in a culture, in the American culture, how does the gospel address us as a culture? Because our American culture is very different, like I said, than most of the world. We have our own definitions of what it means to be free. We say that I'm free to be me, meaning follow your own dreams, follow your own path, do what you want. I'm my own man. I get to do what I want, when I want. Nobody has to tell me anything. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Rules don't apply. I got to get out from the rule of authority because authority is suffocating. All forms of authority are suffocating. I don't need church. I'm going to be real honest with you right here. I don't need church means accountability is stupid. That's what it means. And I'm just saying this from experience in my own heart when I don't want to show up at church. (laughs) That's what it means. We don't like strings. And so we try and define what freedom looks like on our own. Do what I want when I want. I don't wait for anything or anyone. I decide. See, this this is what America thinks freedom looks like. And there's a difference between this idea of freedom and what the freedom that Paul talks about in walking by the Spirit actually means. See, Jesus is not a puppet master who ties himself to people. He actually invites us. And as Christ followers, the amazing part about all of this is what we've seen in the goodness of the gospel. If you have been, you've seen Jesus for who he is and what he's done, your heart response is, I don't want to tie myself to anything or anyone else other than Jesus. Listen to Jesus' invitation in Matthew 16. Jesus says to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower. It's an interesting invitation. In Matthew chapter 11, listen, Jesus does it again. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. If any of you wants... Come to me, take my yoke upon you. Jesus invites us to come to him. He understands that you and I will naturally try and tie ourselves to anything or anyone we think will bring us freedom. And Jesus is throwing his hat into the conversation. You're not going to find freedom anywhere else. Come to me and you will find the freedom that you are so desperately looking for. Now Paul given us an example, and he's, he's, he showed us through the first several chapters of Galatians 
what exactly we have been set free from. But now he's going to kind of take a turn and show us what we've been set free for. There is a purpose to our freedom. In Galatians 5, 6, the, the words spoken here, I pray that the church will understand in a very deep, real way. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, okay, so this is for those of you in this room who have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. So by saying there's no benefit to being circumcised or uncircumcised, what Paul is saying to the church is, look, if your faith is in Christ, there's no amount of work you can do, no amount of failures that you can fail in that's going to change your standing with God. Christ alone has set you free. So whether you're working really hard or you're failing over here, it doesn't matter. We approach God the same way through faith in Christ's finished work. That's how we get there. And it doesn't change He utters the same thing in just a few breaths later in verses 13 and 14. He says, For you have been called to live in freedom. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Here's where we're getting specific. Here's where things are going to get tough. Because this is the struggle. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, the true test of true faith is, does it show up? Does it work? And I'm not talking about another satisfied customer, does it work? I'm talking about, does it express itself in love? The true test of true faith is, does it show up? And I don't want you to walk out of here going, I heard Jason say it. Jason said, it's all about the love. Love's all you need. Just love, just love, just love, just love, just love, just love, just love. That's not what I said. Because it's not what Paul said, and it's not what Jesus said. See, here's the thing. If I just go, okay, faith expressing itself in love. All I heard is love, I'm just going to love. Okay, let's just say it's just love on this hand. Here's the problem. Without our faith anchored in Christ, love becomes a work. And I get proud about my work. Look how good I love people. I love people so good, I love them better than those other Christians. I love people. And we get this attitude and this mentality of, I can do something more important or more valuable to God so that he'll love me more. And so what we communicate is love is a work that earns us a stand before God. Here's the problem. If it is all about love, then why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die for us if it's just about loving everyone? God would be a monster if he killed Jesus And all we had to do was love people. You see, this is why it is not just love. But but we have the other side. We've got the other people who are like, it's faith that saves me. I've got my faith. I have my faith. It's internal. It's in me. It's just me, me and God. That's where we're at. It's my faith. And now I don't have to do a thing. But here's the problem. If your faith does not produce concern for your neighbor, your stranger, enemy, friends, people, missions, God's church, God's plans, his purposes, then where is your faith anchored? Could your faith be anchored in a man-made version of Jesus? Could your faith be in a Jesus that you have created that you like those standards more than you like what Jesus would call us to? Because here's the thing. Jesus is not selfish. There is no selfishness in Jesus. 
And so Paul's not saying it's just faith, it's just love. He's saying faith expressing itself in love. Listen to Martin Luther's words on the topic. The whole Christian life, inwardly it consists in faith towards God and outwardly in love and good works towards our neighbor. Inwardly before God who has no need of our works and outwardly before men whom our faith profits them nothing but who have need for our love and our works. So this is the picture right here. Inwardly, my faith placed in Jesus, placed in Christ. It's what God sees in me that makes me his son. My faith in Christ, not my works. Because God needs to be served by no human hands. Just so we're clear. But you know who does need our works and our love? Our neighbor and our enemy. Jesus even said it. He's like, look, if you see somebody in need and you just walk away and say, I'll pray for you. What has that done for them? What has it done for anyone if you just say, oh, I see your need, I have faith? It does squat for our neighbor. But you know what does for our neighbor? Love. Love and works our neighbor's need to see the faith expressed that we have internally. And so Paul is saying, love expressed because of faith is how we are to live. It's not one or the other, but it's this amazing picture of, yes, we are saved by faith, but man, faith shows up on the outside. And if it's not, then there's some serious questions we have to ask of ourselves. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul really introduces us to this struggle of freedom now. For those that are in Christ Jesus, it's not going to be a question of your salvation, but it is going to be a question of your freedom. Because you and I are going to be really quick to run back to the things that will enslave us. And so in verses 16 and 17, he paints a picture that I think every single one of us in this room will be able to relate to. He says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. So right here, before, before Christ comes in, before the Spirit of God moves in, you've got the sinful nature wreaking havoc on this playground of our heart. Just running around, calling the shots, unchallenged, unquestioned, unconfronted, doing and going after and, and saying and thinking anything and everything that it wants to. But boom, I see Christ. I see that he's been a, a, a rescuer. I see that he offers forgiveness of sin. I see that he's invited me in. Boom, Spirit of God moves in. Now there ain't so much room to move around, is there? Now there's another voice speaking in this conversation, and I want to make something very clear. You did not get a, a, a conscience when you gave your life to Christ. I want you to understand that. The Holy Spirit is not Jiminy Cricket. I want you to know that. He is not. See, when, when the Holy Spirit moves in, there's this desire that has changed. See, you and I have a conscience. God put it in us. He wrote it on our hearts for right and wrong. What we do is we deny that. We deny it. And that's when havoc is wreaked upon the earth. But when the Holy Spirit moves in, you see the selfish desires has this, this thing in it where all it wants to do is glorify itself. I want to point to me. I want to point to me. I want to point to me. And when the Spirit moves in, there's this incredible desire birthed in us by him to bring glory to God. So when the Spirit moves in, he's going to be pointing us to Jesus 
over and over and over and over. Listen to John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. The the, the Holy Spirit's primary role is to point you and I to Jesus. Do I believe that the Holy Spirit shows up and he gives gifts and they manifest and they show up and there's people healing people and there's stuff going on all over in the church and it's all pointed to edify and glorify the church? Absolutely I do. But the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to cause me to look at Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is causing you to look at yourself or another man, you're not listening to the right voice. The Holy Spirit leads us and reminds us and points us to the finished work of Christ all day long, folks. That's his role. That's what he does. And will that show up in other ways to point people to him? Absolutely. But the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of what Christ has accomplished and what he has said and done on our behalf. Now, Paul is about to take away the guest factor for us. There are some of you in this room that you like lists. You like to be able to go, okay, I have to have this checklist. Is everything packed? Is everything done? Is everything ready? I like lists in the Bible because they are a good tool for self-examination. This understanding of, okay, what areas of my life do I need to bring my life into line with what God desires? Not what do I get to omit and run away from and throw down on the ground, but no, seriously, Lord, show me where I'm not in line with what you have for me. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul presents a very difficult list for us to look at. And I want to make sure you understand this. That this is the thing, these are things that the church is not to take part in. These are things that the church is to examine their hearts with and go, whoa, I have allowed the culture to speak to me in ways that I did not mean to. I cannot look at a culture and tell them, hey, stop doing all this stuff. It's not my role. It's my role to remind us of what Jesus has done. And this list is tough to consider on many levels. In chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the desires of your sinful nature, me getting what I want when I want, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pump your brakes, Jason. Hold on just a second. You've been talking about all this grace that in the midst of my sin, Jesus came and died and, and there's nothing I can do to separate me from him. And, and if I'm smothered, covered and chunked in grace, then what in the world is this list about? Why would this even be here? What is this for me to consider? I just like grace. That's what I like. Paul is not flip-flopping on what it takes to be saved here. I want you to know that. But what Paul is giving us is a very clear indicator to when our hearts are saying, God, you're a liar. And God, you are not enough. And God, you don't know what you're doing. And when those statements are coming from our heart, the results will be very clear, according to Paul. 
When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, that is us running after what we trust, what we know, what we think is best, rather than being led by the Spirit. That was the fall in the garden. Adam and Eve struggle, the same struggle we face today. We don't want to be near God. We want to be God. We want to call the shots. We want to define what is awesome and what is not. We want to be the standard. And folks, when that's what we do, things get nasty. The results will be very clear. None of this outward behavior just happens. I want you to know that. Jesus, in the controversy of the hand-washing incident of 33 AD, the Pharisees' fury over Jesus being mad that they didn't wash their hands before a meal. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Don't you understand yet, Jesus asked? Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Some of you in this room are going, defile? That just sounds dirty. Do you know what it means? means to make common. Whereas the people of God were called to be holy and set apart. And so Jesus is saying when we run after these things in our heart, our desires are to go after what we want and where we want and we think we can do and all this stuff, we are going to run to these things that we think will set us apart, but in fact they make us common. It's common stuff. Whereas we through the Spirit of God, through trust and faith in Christ, have been made holy. So these things are us trying to tell God, we know better than you. These actions are a result of refusing to let the Spirit lead us, a refusal to believe that Jesus alone is enough. And then it's a confession that we know what's best. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures... We live in a culture that is willing and ready to tell everyone that all sex is, is, is good. But we also live in a culture where the church, she doesn't know what she's talking about when it comes to sex, and so she says all sex is bad. So who do we listen to? Who do we talk to? Who do we consider? Who do we look to for direction? Because Paul says that when we're running after the things we want the most, when we're running and we're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing, it results in sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. God, you are not enough. I know better than you when it comes to intimacy and relationship, and I know how to find it without you. So the results end up being one-night stands, active multiple sexual partners, dishonoring the marriage bed of, of one man and one woman for life, pornography. Let's just, let's just not call it a pornography addiction if you are a husband in this room. It's an adultery addiction. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said that it's an issue of the heart, and it's us trying to find satisfaction and intimacy and relationship in ways that God did not design. For us, you and I, Genesis holds us to what God created for us. Jesus testified to what God created marriage to look like in the New Testament. He spoke of it. But when was the last time we said, God, what do you think? Impurity and lustful pleasures, ultimately uncontrolled sexuality. Nothing is off limits because we think we know best what intimacy and relationship looks like and we think God does not. 
idolatry and sorcery. This is not just talking about money as an idol. This is talking about literal other gods that people will bow down to. And why would that be a temptation in the church? Well, it's a temptation in the church because Jesus asks for all of us, well, if we don't like that, then we'll go somewhere else that something is easier. We'll go somewhere else. We'll, we'll, we'll turn to sorcery. We'll turn to witchcraft. We'll turn to all these other worldly sources of fake power because we want to be filled with something. We just don't want the God that comes with it. Idolatry, sorcery, God, you are not enough. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, and envy. I call these the church sins right here. This is church folk sin right here. See, all the other stuff's not allowed, but church folk, we can do this if we want. We can be hostile and quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of anger and selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, but I don't go no drunk parties. That's what we do. Somehow we allow these things to be okay in our own lives. You know what? We're saying to God, God, you're not enough because I see what everybody else has and I want it. If you're somebody who's argumentative constantly, you're always picking fights. You can't let things go. You're attempting to divide people rather than bring them together. Chances are in your heart you have said, God, you're not enough. Drunkenness and wild parties. Some of your scripture versions may say orgies. This has nothing to do with sexual. This is drinking parties and drunkenness. The idea of being filled with something to fake the being filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea of I want to be filled with something so I will get drunk. I will get high. I don't care. I just want to run after these things because God, I don't think Jesus brings satisfaction. I think these things will. All of the things on this list are us saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. God, you don't know what it's like for me. And the results, Paul says, will be very clear. Now, the key is living this sort of life. Paul didn't say we wouldn't struggle against these things because we do struggle. We will struggle. Paul's not talking about the infrequent, I stumble, I fail, I repent, I get up, and I keep moving, looking at Jesus. What he is talking about is the life that practices these things. See, in 1 John, John wrote a letter to a church to help them with their assurance and understanding of how they know they can be saved. And he says, look, a child of God does not make a practice of sinning. Does that say he'll be perfect? No. He says, a child of God makes a practice of righteousness. Does it say he'll be perfect? No. What do you do when you practice? You're aiming to get better at something, right? Paul and John both say that we don't make a practice of sinning. We don't aim to get better at it. We aim to live lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't aim to live lives by the selfish, sinful nature. And so then Paul transitions a little bit because here's the thing. Jesus told the Pharisees, the very moral and upright people, that the tax gatherers and the prostitutes were getting into the kingdom of heaven before them. So if it's not about your behavior, then what is it about? Jesus said in the story of the sheep and the goats, when they separate the two and the, the sheep get to enter into the kingdom, Jesus says, I know the sheep. The goats, they didn't get to enter in because Jesus said, I don't know them. So then what is it that causes us this kingdom life? And Paul sets it up very simply with another list. And if you'll notice, it's not a to-do list. I just want you to notice this. I want you to see this because I love this. For some of you who are to-do list people, you're going to hate this. But for those of you in this room who have tried the to-do list life and you can't do it, <laughs> this is comforting. 
Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Notice the word is fruit. It is not fruits of the Holy Spirit. It is not a you-pick-two combo because that seems more realistic than actually developing all of them. You may be in this room saying, well, okay... I'm just not a patient person, so that's never going to happen. No, you're not a patient person. But you know who was? Jesus. You know, I'm just not a joyful person. You're not. You're not a lot of fun to be around right now. But you know who was? (laughs) Jesus. The joy set before him because he knew what was coming is the joy that you and I have inherited. I just don't have any self-control. No, you don't. (laughs) But you know who does? Jesus. Never once did he act impulsively, but everything was calculated and was in self-control. Listen to these, these things that when we place our trust in Christ and we keep our eyes on him, listen to what develops. Love. And I'm not just talking about touchy-feel, emotional, uh, whatever, romance stuff that, that people want to be all about. This love by definition, is a love that serves another simply because they have value. You see, the way America works, we want to love someone if we can get something out of it. And over and over and over, Jesus says, that is not the love I am showing you. The type of love that will develop in us because it was displayed in Jesus is a love for people simply because they have value, not because I can get anything from them. Joy, anchored in the promises of God because of who he is. The more I look at Jesus, the more I see what God has promised and he has fulfilled in Christ, and joy settles in. Peace, confidence that God is in control, that I am not in control. That's part of the confession. I am not in control, but he is, and I rest in that. Patience, facing trouble without exploding. Literally. Kindness, the ability to serve others without worrying about yourself. Oh, to be a people free of worrying about ourselves, right? Fruit of the Spirit. This is what he develops in us as we look at Christ. Gentleness, ultimately meaning self-forgetfulness. Like, I'm not even worried about me because I see the needs of others. Faithfulness, just being true to your word. Yes, be yes, no, be no, and self-control, the ability to pursue the important over the urgent. Self-control, the ability to pursue the important over the urgent. These characteristics develop not because we practice them. I don't know how to practice patience. Does anyone? I mean, do you just go sit in an airport line for practice? I don't know. Do you go and and get in those three rows that Southwest does that's like the cattling rally and getting all the cattle in a row? I don't know. You don't practice these things. This isn't about a to-do list. This isn't about mimicking Jesus. It's trusting that Jesus is all of these things. And as I look at him, something changes in me. Galatians 2.20 is the picture of how the fruit develops. 
My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why at the end of that verse about the fruit, it says, against such things there is no law. Does that mean because if you're a loving person, there is no law? No. If you're a kind person, there is no law? Is that what it means? No. There is no law because the Spirit is present. You and I are no longer held under the slavery of the law of trying to work our way to God and not even this list of things. Us doing these things frees us from the law. It's the presence of the Spirit of God that frees us from all of the things that come with it. And in verses 24 and 25, we'll conclude with this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Notice the order. Leave that scripture up there for a second. Belonging comes before nailing. See, the church for way too long has stood on a corner and held some signs and told people to kill all their bad stuff. In effect, what we've said is you've got to prepare yourself, clean yourself up to come to Jesus, which is no gospel at all. The gospel is you will never be clean enough. So go to Jesus. That's the invitation. The key to inheriting the kingdom is not being a kind person, not being a loving person. The the thing that will keep you out of the kingdom is not being a bad person. It's what you do with Jesus. This is why the gospel is so shocking because it addresses every single one of us. Those of you who think you're on a moral high ground and those of you who think you're too far away from the good grace of Jesus. This addresses and shatters our way of thinking. And in the church in America today, we have been so swayed by a culture, and we claim to be his people, but we don't even recognize his voice. Jesus said that the sheep will know my voice. We say we're Christians, but we argue with that voice, we deny that voice. Some of us don't even hear that voice because we're still walking in the old man, the old desires, and in the old flesh. My mentor for many years would tell this story as he spoke often. He said there was a a journalist who caught wind of a guy who fought dogs and he traveled with them around the country. He had two dogs and he would host dog fights so that people could bet money on these dogs And the journalist caught on to what he was doing because every time the man placed a bet on one of these two dogs, he would win. And so the journalist just kept following this guy around, watching the patterns, watching what he was doing. And then one day he just came to the man and said, look, I don't understand how you do this. Every time you bet on one of these dogs, the dog you bet on wins. What have you done? And the dog owner looks at the man, the journalist, and says, it's simple, man. The dog I feed wins. Highland 
Jason, there are two very real dogs in this fight. And my question for us today is very simply, have we allowed culture to force feed us everything that she thinks and we've just decided yes? The Bible says that the results of saying yes to the, the sinful nature and the culture will be very clear. But saying yes to the Spirit, the results are also very clear. What's inside does come out, and it expresses itself in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, you may not be developing as fast in some areas as you would like. (laughs) Why does it take so long to be patient? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But what I do know is that as Christ followers, we're not strapping up, you know, pulling up our boots and trying to do it ourselves. The invitation to feed the Spirit is to sit with Jesus. It's to sit with other believers who are struggling through life to figure out, man, what is God's voice saying? What is he saying? What is he asking of me? Where is he leading? And so the very real question is, what dog are you feeding? Are you saying, culture, give it to me straight? Or are you saying, Jesus, what are your thoughts on everything from sexuality to my life to who I am to my next job to the people I'm supposed to walk with? Lord, would you just talk with me? Spending time in, in the Word and looking at Jesus through the Word and how God chose to reveal himself to us through him. Because that, that is when the fruit is developed and not only is the fruit good in us, but it is what the world is longing to see. Not chemically altered, man-made, fake, plastic fruit, but real, organic, natural fruit that is produced by the Spirit of God in us. This morning as we close in worship, I know this is never easy stuff to talk about because we all have opinions, and I know that. I know that we all have opinions, and they've all been formed some way. But if we're calling ourselves Christ followers, we're saying, first and foremost, my sinful desires have been nailed to the cross because of what Jesus has done. And we're asking him to lead us. And so I'm going to ask some elders and some gel leaders to be over here. And if you would just like to be prayed for, or if you're just like, I don't even know what to do with what I've heard, they'd love to pray with you. And I'll I'll be standing over here. If you're one in this room who's gone, I don't understand faith in Christ. I don't know what that looks like. I'd love to pray with you, encourage you. But my hope and my prayer is that we will not just go, if this is true, but we will go, how do I live in light that it is true? Jesus, thanks for loving us. Thanks for walking us through hard topics and hard things and hard cultural contexts, but the gospel is so big that it shatters all the walls and excuses that we have. And I ask that this morning, somehow, you would speak to our hearts, draw us back to you, where we have allowed other things to speak louder than you, I pray that, Jesus, you would begin that invitation for us to return to you. It's in your name we pray.